Well, when we turn to our passage this morning, we drop right in the middle of a battlefield. It's like a movie opening right in the middle of a fierce conflict with bombs exploding and bullets flying and warriors falling. That's what happens when our passage opens this morning. We parachute right into the middle of a series of battles. Would you please locate 2 Samuel chapter 8? That's in the first part of the Christian Bible, part 1, known as the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. Now, one of the greatest kings in world history is about to lead his people into battle. His name is King David. And much has happened to bring us to this point. A sage prophet named Samuel, whose name is on this book, part one and two, one Samuel and two Samuel, the the sage prophet anoints a young shepherd boy named David to be the next king. But it's years and years before David becomes king. There is often a long delay between the promise God makes and the promise that God keeps. But God is not only faithful when he makes the promise and when he keeps the promise, God is faithful between the promises too. David then endures but survives repeated attacks on his life by a man who's his father-in-law who just so happens to be the king. God preserves him each time. We read this phrase, and the Lord was with David wherever he went. In 2 Samuel 2, David finally becomes the king, but only over part of a country. Contested elections are nothing new. They certainly never surprise God. The rest of the nation lived on in opposition to David and in willful opposition to God's will too, because they all knew David is to be the king. Well, David finally comes to be the king over all of Israel in 2 Samuel 5. And he unites a divided nation and he establishes a capital city and a place called Jerusalem. And what a place and city Jerusalem would become. Then in 2 Samuel 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant, this holy symbol of God's dear and dreadful presence into the city. But everybody almost dies. What happened? Well, they imagine that good intentions... And good desires were the only thing that mattered. This is the often God sees my heart theology. The only thing that matters is our desires and intentions, they thought. But friends, obeying God's word matters just as much or more than our motives. Because people for, for, Forgo? Because they ignored, because they, because they ignored and disobeyed his clear commands about how to handle the ark, God took the life of Uzzah, no matter if he thought he was worshiping God or not. And in mercy, God only took Uzzah's life. So that people then and now would fear God and keep his commandments. God's word is always to be honored God is always holy, more holy than our desires. 
David then leads the nation in three months of self-examination. And three months later, it dawns on him what they did wrong. And they finally bring the ark into the city and keeping with God's commands. And there's great fanfare and dancing and, and dancing and delighting and feasting. And for the first time since Eden, God's people were in God's city under God's king enjoying his presence. No wonder they were dancing and drinking and feasting. This hasn't happened since Eden. Then comes to Samuel 7. This great Niagara Falls of the Old Testament. And David has this desire. He wants to build something more permanent and more glorious for the ark than a tent. I don't know. But David was probably an activator and an achiever. He had found a copy of John Maxwell's study Bible. He had read Jim Collins' Good to Great. And then in his C12 group, he had, with Joab and Zadok and his friends, they came up with a business plan to build God a house. Now, it was a good desire in part, but it was all wrong in the whole. God didn't need David and his plans. David needed God and his grace. God's word would guide the matter. The same is true for us. God's word governs our plans, our responsibilities, and every part of every church, always. But David's desire, denied, turned into God's sovereign plan asserted. God gives us his word. And so now we have one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. When God makes an undeserving promise to an undeserving man to provide an eternal dynasty for undeserving people like you and like me. I will make a great name for you, David, and give you a great son, God says. And so all the previous great promises of the Bible concentrate in the second Samuel seven and then flow out to the world through King David until we come to Jesus Christ, the son of David, who will rule forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. God promised to save the world through one of David's sons. And that son would be Jesus. What a chapter and what a promise. And more than that, what a God. Behold the sovereign grace of God to a great sinner like David. God promised a great name to a great sinner who would give a great son who would save a sinful world. Now, all of those events set up the battles to Samuel 8. And as we will see, this chapter reveals even more promises that God keeps for David and his people. Because twice in the middle of these battles, we hear this Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark like theme. Bum, bum, bum. Except in this chapter, are you in Second Samuel 8? Are you there? Look at the end of verse 6. What's the theme? What does it say at the end of verse 6? And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now look down at verse 13. The first line echoes God's promise to give David a great name. Verse 13. And David made a name for himself. Why? Now read the last line of verse 14. What does it say? And the Lord gave great victory to David wherever he went. So as we watch David leading his people in battle in this chapter, we should see the power of God's providence and his promises fueling it all. Why? Second Samuel 8, verse 6, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. What was that again? Second Samuel 8, and the Lord gave victory 
to David wherever he went. And victory is the word saved. It's used in the judges that God raised up saviors and he saved his people. The Lord is giving salvation to David wherever he went. David does stand before us as God's ideal king in this chapter, truly empowered by God's special promises. One writer explains it like this. That by placing this text right after chapter 7, the historian illustrates that that Yahweh, that God fulfills his covenant promises to David, beginning immediately with these spectacular military successes and unprecedented spoil from war. So you should see chapter 8 as God immediately keeping his promise to David to give him a great name and bless the nations of the earth. Indeed, as readers then, we are prepared to learn of David's great success as Israel's ideal king, the perfect king. And indeed, this chapter before us serves as a capstone on the narrative of David's royal career. I don't know if you read the rest of the Samuel, but it's getting ready to go downhill fast. But this is as glorious as it gets. And it's glorious. So this morning, I want us to see God's kingdom expanding through his king. And we're going to add two more phrases to that title but you have that for now god's kingdom expanding through his king over his enemies now let's read this chapter 1 to 14 we'll read 15 following later you're going to get a battle report what we get is a report a review from battle so this is what second samuel 8 verse 1 this is what holy scripture says after this david defeated the philistines and subdued them and David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. As he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates, and David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of them too, the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Berothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to the king of David to ask about his health. Yeah, right. And bless him. Come on, you got to laugh. The guy knows what's happening. Because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. And for the second time now, King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Edom, Moab. Ammonites, 
Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. This is the word of the Lord. Look at the remaining verses in our time. But I want us to see now this main idea of God's kingdom advancing over his enemies through his king. Now, these nations sound very odd to us and their locations do as well. But if you plotted them on a map with Jerusalem at the center, you would notice that with Jerusalem at the center, these cities mentioned lie at every point on the compass. So that God's kingdom expands through David over the Philistines to the seacoast on the west. And then he goes back to the east to defeat Moab in verse 2. And then in verses 3 to 12, he goes all the way to the north where he defeats this king of Zobah and Damascus all the way to the north. And then in verses 13 and 14, he now defeats Edom in the south. Oh, what's happening? We're witnessing God's kingdom as it expands north, south, east, and west. It's a remarkable scene in biblical history. Another high point in the story of redemption. How? Because God's kingdom is no longer in one place. It's breaking out to the east, to the west, to the north, the south. Now, in times past, the first king of Israel, King Saul, would defend God's people from attackers and invaders and the like. And long before that, in times past, God's people wandered in the wilderness like Abraham, who looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. But God's people are no longer looking for a city. They're in one. They're no longer simply defending, but they're advancing. God's kingdom is expanding. It's breaking out. That's like an ink blot or food coloring that you drop on a napkin that spreads to cover this whole white napkin. David's moving out. Here's the expansion of God's kingdom through his chosen king. One scholar reflects that by anybody's calculation, the regions that David adds to the realm to the defeat of all the nations surrounding him more than double the territory of Israel. And this successful military campaign described here in this chapter initiates a golden age in Israel's history. So vast in world history at the time, so vast was the expansion of God's kingdom through David at the end of this chapter that one historian describes it like this, that David's expansion of Israel dwarfed every previous political entity established in this region, even exceeding the extent of the Egyptian empire in the second millennium. This indeed is the golden age of Israel among the nations. God was keeping his promises. So at a big picture level, we are seeing the expansion of God's kingdom through God's legitimate king and through his kingly line. In the flow of the story of Samuel, it's David, not Saul, who's the chosen king. It's David's line, not Saul's now, how God is going to deal with the messianic kingdom. The promises of Abraham will come to pass through David. So spreading out before us is a is a beautiful, ideal picture of God's kingdom. A kingdom that stretches to every point on the compass. That that takes every nation into the world, metaphorically. And God's people and the nations would love King David. Why? 
We haven't read it yet, but let's dip our toe there and come back because verse 15, because David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. David is God's chosen king, his victorious king and God's just king. Nobody was just like this in the region. What a moment it is. A high watermark. With this report, God's people then who would read this were encouraged to put their trust in God's chosen king. Put your trust in God's chosen king. They were encouraged to live in light of God's promises through David. Promises first made to Abraham and even to Adam and Eve before. Here was the message of Second Samuel 8 to them. Trust the Lord in his chosen king. Trust the Lord in his sovereign promises. Wherever they were, exile, before, after, that's the message of Second Samuel 8. Trust in God's chosen king. Believe his promises. Now, as you hear all of that, doesn't your heart start to run forward to other parts of the Bible too? Here is what I mean. 2 Samuel 8 gives us both a review of what God did and a preview of God, what he will do. What God did then was to encourage his people to trust his king. That was King David. Put your trust in God's king or get trucked by God's king. Briefly, I saw a football game yesterday and a dude got trucked. You know what getting trucked is? You lower your helmet and the dude is pounded and trucked. You know what the message of this is from 2 Samuel 8? You trust God's king or get trucked by God's king. That's the message of 2 Samuel 8. Trust or be trucked. But 2 Samuel 8 not only gives us a review of what God did then to encourage repentance and faith, and also in the context of the Bible gives us a preview of what God will do in the future with somebody much better than David. It's a review and a preview. That's one way you have to understand 2 Samuel 8. And one way you know that is because 2 Samuel 7, David at the end of the song praises God by saying, God, you are dealing with me and how you're going to deal with me is how you're going to deal with the entire world. What you've just told me is that through me, you're going to deal with the world. So when you come then to this chapter, this is not only how God is dealing with David, but how he will deal with the world through David. We have one indication of this. Later we read, two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 43. So long after the expansion of God's kingdom to every point of the globe in 2 Samuel 8, we read in Isaiah 43 of another day when God says, he gives this command, say to the north and the south, say to the east and the west, you hear the directions again? Say to them, give me my people back again. Isaiah 43, 5 and 6. Do you see? Second Samuel 8 happens in real time to admonish God's people then to put their trust in a faithful God and his chosen king. And yet what we're seeing, if you have ears to hear and connect it with this whole Christian story of the Bible, that God's also providing a preview of the global reign of one of David's sons. Jesus Christ, the son of David. So looking through this window, you're going to see the end of the ages when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, when he will reign forever and ever. That's what's being previewed as it's being reviewed in Second Samuel 8. Now, having given you that, 
this big level picture and a rationale for reading it, review and preview. Now I want to look at the review and then go to the preview at the end. How about that? All right, you with me? So let's look at some of the details in this chapter that that the, the narrator reviews to underline this point that God expands his kingdom through his king. So verse one. God's kingdom expands to the west through God's king. Go west, young man, go west. David defeats the Philistines, but not only that, verse one declares that he subdued them. Now, don't yawn at these as we go through. The Philistines were Israel's arch rival, in a sense. Their worst foe. I don't know what arch rival comes to your mind, like like football rivals, like Michigan and Ohio State or Microsoft and Apple. But but now we hear that David not only defeated Israel's greatest rival, but he did so on their home field and he subdued them. You may have a different translation that gives that hard to pronounce word or First Chronicles 18 records that David even took down the capital city of Gath which is where that old giant named Goliath was from. He was taking them down at their stronghold. And from this point on, I ask my kids if people still say this. I don't know what their phrase is now. But from this point on, when someone asked the Philistines, who's your daddy? The Philistines would reply, David, he's our daddy. He subdued them. He defeated them. But second, God's kingdom expanded back to the east over to Moab. That's verse two. And when it's done, look at the last line of verse two. What happened? The Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Well, why Moab? Well, in part because in Numbers 25, we read the shocking report. Here's Numbers 25. God's people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people of Israel ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel did not forsake God, but also yoked himself to Baal of Peor with the Moabites. And because God is not indifferent to two-timing adulterers any more than you would be, Numbers 25, 3 ends like this, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. More we learn later in Isaiah 16, uh, uh, that, that Moab had been given chance after chance after chance, that Moab, the nation, Like like our former president was full of pride and arrogance and insolence. So God's kingdom expanded to the west over over syncretistic, arrogant east Moab. Now, friends. If God did not take pride lightly, then. If God does not take kindly to worshiping him and something else, blending devotion to God with something else, then he won't take it lightly in your life either. Then in verses 3 to 12, God's kingdom now goes far north, all the way up to the Euphrates River. And when it's all done, the end of verse 6 records the same result over the Philistines and Moab. What was that? The Syrians became servants to David and they brought tribute. This is a total conquest. This is a shutout. Now, one thing interesting to note, lots of things, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you one about David the king as the kingdom expands all the way to the north. I think we see what kind of king David is in this moment of his life. Because at the end of verse 4, the narrator tells us that he hamstrung all of the chariot horses. They'd no longer be able to charge into battle. They, he didn't kill them. They, they just wouldn't gallop anymore. They'd be good for the pasture and pulling a cart, but not leading a chariot. Joshua did the same thing in Joshua eleven six. 
Why is this detail important? Because horses, chariot horses, were like the armored tank division of that day. I remember living in Fort Hood, Texas, home of the 1st Cavalry Division, and seeing the mighty at the time, N1 Abrams tank, loaded onto planes headed for the first Gulf War. Horses wouldn't lead the first cab into battle anymore. The mighty M1A1 Abrams tank would. And it was a sight to behold in battle. What's the point? Well, if David takes all the chariot horses, he would be stockpiling the ancient equivalent of armored tanks. And you say, yeah, why is that a problem? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, God told his kings who would come, they were not to multiply horses. They were not to stockpile tanks, as it were. But counterintuitively, they were to put their trust in God alone. You mean I have a chance to get chariot horses and you want me not to take them? King David even wrote a song about this in Psalm 20. And you know what David sang in Psalm 20, verse 7? You know it. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you see? Beloved, it would be a worthwhile reflection on ways that we could limit our lives, limit our work, limit whatever in counterintuitive ways in order to cultivate trust in the Lord. So David's action here, I think, Show him keeping God's word, modeling absolute confidence in the Lord. He would put his trust in God, not horses and tanks. So David's life asks you today, where where is your trust? Behold, God's great king, trusting and obeying God's word, counterintuitively doing something that every... You're you're not going to take the tanks? And after we see God's king expand God's kingdom to the west and the east and the north, now we have, a, we have a brief interlude. The melodic theme from Indiana Jones comes on at the end of verse 6, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It's a kind of memorable but melodic theme that we should take into account. And the point then of Second Samuel 8 isn't David's strategy, but the object of David's faith. God was saving his people through his king. And the Lord gave victory. He gave salvation to David wherever he went. Well, we have one more direction for expansion. Finally, God's kingdom expands through God's king all the way down south to Edom. And when it does, the result is the same. Verse 14. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And then the theme appears again so that you don't forget as a reader or observer of that day or this day. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So God is the hero of 2 Samuel. He's saving his people through his king. Pause for a moment. That kind of line, God gave David victory, reminds us that That what God blesses is not extroverts or introverts or this Enneagram versus that Enneagram. But God uses anyone and everyone who trusts and obeys. We met yesterday with a group of guys to talk about the book that we read on the Reformation. And on the one hand, if you're on a desert island, you want Luther to be there because he's, he's a cool person to hang out with. He's in the pub and he's in the party and he always has something to say. 
Calvin wants to be your friend and he doesn't know how. He's in the library. He's shy. He's reserved. And guess which one God used? Both of them. You know what Calvin's motto was as a deeply shy, awkward introvert? My heart I give to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. That was his seal and his motto. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And if you put your trust in David's God, if you put your trust in David's son, the Lord will give you victory wherever you go. He will save you. So, so complete is this expansion of God's kingdom to every point on the globe, from sea to here to the plains of Moab, far north to Euphrates, Damascus, down in the deep south. Here's the complete summary. From Edom, verse 12, and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, all the way in the north. The nations listed here are the groups of people in Joshua's day that they were supposed to drive out, but they never did it fully. And every reader of the story of Samuel knows that one nation in particular stands out in verse 12. Do this. Look in. What name in particular stands out in the story of Samuel? Amalek. Remember how Saul disobeyed in dispensing with Amalek? He trotted out the God sees my heart and motives theology and it led to God taking the kingdom from Saul. But what a contrast David is. He deals decisively with the Philistines and Amalek and Moab and on and on it goes. Here is God's king trusting and obeying. Here is God giving victory to his trusting king. But now we can ask this. God expands his his kingdom through his king. Yes, but why? Why does God expand his kingdom through his king? In other words, what is David's secret? Here's a History Channel documentary. What made General MacArthur great? What made Patton great? What was David's secret? Where did he go to school? What was his mom like? What was the secret? What did he figure out in the Middle East nobody had? Here's one answer I'll suggest from the text. God's promises. God expanded his kingdom by his promises through his king. You see, behind these victories are not only God's power to save, but God's promises that empowered David. What do I mean? Well, these geographical dimensions here, the mention of the Euphrates and other parts, they're in keeping with a really old promise that God made first to Abraham. Remember we saw in 2 Samuel 7, the promises to Abraham were coming to pass now through one man in Israel, David the king. So back in Genesis 15, when when Abraham's still wandering around looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, when he has no place to live, to lay his head in a sense, God made a promise in Genesis 15, to your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And now those promised boundaries to Abraham, extraordinary boundaries from Egypt down here to the Euphrates here are coming to pass. So the big point here, God's sovereign faithfulness to his promises, he expands his kingdom by his promises through his king. Those boundaries God promised to Abraham, he confirmed it to Moses. The boundaries that Joshua attempted to take but never fully realized, now they're fully here. Why? 
God's faithfulness. Our faithfulness. I know taking the dog on the walk this week. I mean, I take a flashlight, but this week I've not needed a flashlight at the glorious full moon. But you know what irks me about the moon? It doesn't stay full. Can I put it like this? The faithfulness of God's people wax and wane like the moon. But God's faithfulness shines constant like the bright north star, always there, always shining. Parents come and go. Kings and teachers and coaches too. Friends will disappoint and turn on you. Pastors commit moral failures and congregants vote faithful pastors out. But not so the Lord. Second Samuel 8 reminds anxious people like you and me of this one unchanging reality. More reliable than the North Star, you can trust the Lord. He's faithful and reliable. He's faithful and true. He's never up for re-election. He's always in charge. He's faithful and true. So one commentator declares at this point, the important message to Israel then as well to every reader now is this. The Lord is faithful to his promises. David's conquests are not in the first instance to be viewed as demonstrations of his military skill. Although he was clearly a capable military leader. But an evidence that God was faithful to his promises. You see how the kingdom expands? It's not because David is good, but because God is faithful. And we sing, great is thy faithfulness. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor in different places, wrote a book on the the characteristics of God, uh, the attributes of God called the knowledge of the holy. Chapter 15 is just called the faithfulness of God. Here's what Tozer says. The faithfulness of God is a datum of sound theology. But to the believer, it's far more than that. God's faithfulness passes through the process of understanding and goes on to become nourishing food for the soul. Because upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope for future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand. Only as he is faithful will his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, will we live in peace and look forward with assurance and a life to come. Oh, the faithfulness of God. And friend, what do you think expand? What do you think explains your life? Isn't it the faithfulness of God? And you know what David does? David moves out on the basis of those kinds of promises. I want you to see that in this chapter, that David's greatness, again, is not tied to his personality. It's tied to his trusting promises and living in light of them. He not only believed them, but David lived like he believed them. In chapter 7, if you were here, go back and read it if you weren't. In chapter 7, David makes an audacious, bold prayer. And he says, I'm only praying this way because you promised. He makes a bold prayer based on God's promises. You know what David's doing in chapter 8? He's boldly advancing because of God's promises. 
God's sovereignty, his promises, encourage activity in the highest degree. Our statement of faith says that, that God's gracious election, his choice to save sinners before the foundation of the world, encourages the use of means to call sinners to repentance to the highest degree because he made a promise. God's promises guarantee the success of the means of grace. David moved out because God made a promise to him. And he didn't need to read another book on how to do it. How are God's promises transforming the way you live? We know so, I know so many. How many of them am I living in light of? If God is sovereign in salvation, then why don't I declare the gospel more regularly to people? Move out and open your mouth and declare the gospel to your friends because Paul says in Acts, Luke says in Acts, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So God's kingdom advances through his king and how does it happen? Because God's faithful to keep his promises. Now this all sounds like a day that rarely happens in my life. I mean, I got battles and I ain't winning them. On the surface, it looks easy. We could have the picture that David pulls up in a kind of, I know it's thousands of years later, but he pulls up in a Roman chariot and, and he sets up a, a stool that he sets up and someone feeds him grapes and he sends a few men into battle and, and then he yawns and says, I'm easily bored by the simplicity of this game and bring me your finest meats and cheeses and, and, and he just waits for it to be done. The chapter sounds like a cakewalk. But we know from other parts of the Bible how desperate these battles actually were, every one of them. Not everyone who went to battle for Israel came back alive. Families were broken. Sons died too young. Mothers cried. How do you know? Well, down in verses 13 and 14, here's just one indication. In the defeat of Edom, it talks about it. So write Psalm 60 next to verses 13 and 14 because Psalm 60 records a song about that battle. And Psalm 60 opens like this to the choir master when Joab struck down Edom in the Valley of Salt. There's the there's the verbal connection. Now listen to how Psalm 60 reflects at the beginning on what the battle felt like. Oh God, you have rejected us and broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, Lord, restore us. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that's made us stagger. Does that sound like an easy battle? What's the point? God's kingdom advances in the face of conflict. Really great conflict. God's promises don't mean the battle will be easy. God's promises mean the battle is worth fighting. God's kingdom advances by his promises through God's king in the midst of really great conflict. Listen, it's never easy to follow Jesus. Maybe you're, maybe you're a Philistine and, and you say, hey, is it easy to follow God? Easy? Did you see what they did to our king? I don't mean David. I mean Jesus. Easy? 
Advancing God's kingdom cost the son of David his life. And should you expect any less? Don't think it's strange, Peter says. But God uses the conflict of suffering to overcome evil. Isn't that how he saved you at the cross? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to push me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by your word. That's how David moved out. Here then is the advance of God's kingdom in the face of conflict over all of his enemies. Now, now we've got to deal with 15, 16, 17, and 18. And here are the two final matters I want us to see. I want us to see God's kingdom expanding over all his enemies in conflict by his promises. And now God establishes his kingdom. And how should we respond to this king? We've had this review We have a little more review and then we're going to head to the preview. So first, verses 15 to 17. Would you read those with me or listen? I want you to hear God establishing his kingdom through his king. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, here's his cabinet. The son of Zariah was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was the secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's son were priests or chief administrators. This is God's word. Beloved, this is a beautiful summary of David's reign in the main as a king. He administered justice to all his people. What that means is that King David would apply God's law to God's people and that David, by doing so, reflected God himself. Don't you wish there could be said of just one leader today full of justice and truth? It's the kind of ruler that we all long for. David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. You know how we know that David would have been just. He, he would have applied God's law to the kingdom. That's what the king was supposed to do. You become the king. You write out a copy of God's law by hand. And as you write that law, you internalize it. And now you're going to take this law, uh, uh, summarized in Exodus and Deuteronomy, you're going to take my law code and you're going to administer justice based on my word. Here's a king, unlike Saul, who's keeping God's word, who's not trying to increase his power base, playing favorites. But here's a king applying God's word. Both the comfortable and the uncomfortable parts to people. Just and true and righteous. There there are many ways. Here it is in the text. There are many ways to apply this today. I think one of the many, many threats to true justice are the unjust ways we deal with injustices, real or perceived. There could be other applications, sure. Stanford scholar Shelby Steele argues in his book 
that the current age of white guilt is just as responsible for ongoing wrongs than anything else. And critical theory trades on guilt, locking some in perpetual purgatory with no forgiveness or atonement and absolving others who genuflect and bow at the altar of intersectionality. But in David's kingdom, neither the rich nor the poor were favored. The high and the low were dealt with in the same law. God's law and his word were the only standard. So on the one hand, Exodus 23, 6, you shall not prefer justice due to the poor. I don't know if tragedy is the right word, but, but it's still laughable. It doesn't seem right that the rich and important seem able to buy an accusation or defense while the poor can't get the same hope. You shall not pervert justice due to the poor. But on the other hand, neither shall you say because you are poor, he is right. Exodus 23, you shall not be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Indeed, you shall not bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to prefer justice. Exodus 23. Why? Because Proverbs 17, it's indeed, it's indeed an abomination to acquit anybody who's guilty. But it's an equal abomination to condemn anybody who's righteous. Proverbs 17, 15. So in David's kingdom, he would not believe everything and automatically favored nobody's intersectionality points, but he took everything very seriously and handled them in line with God's word in Deuteronomy and Exodus. In a phrase, David administered justice and equity to all his people. What a king he was. He's not in the pocket of anybody. We could say like the reformer Martin Luther long after him, David's conscience as the king was captive to the word of God alone. And this very description of David not only describes his actions, but it describes God himself. These two words are... are, are the words the psalmist used to praise God. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Do you see then how all this points beyond David to God and in time to Christ himself? His reign reflected God himself. He not only trusted God's promise, he acted upon them. And all the more, he reflected God's king as character. No wonder he's the ideal king. Remember how in the ancient years, a son of a God reflected that God. Where here's David, righteous and just, reflecting God as righteous and just. He's the ideal king at this point. The ideal son. And one day Jesus Christ comes, not as a near representation of God, but can I use this colloquial phrase? Jesus comes as God's own spitting image. The very outshining of God himself. Not a representation. Here's God in the full of grace and truth. And then the verses show us David sets up the kingdom with administrators who themselves would be guided according to God's word. Here's Joab the general. We need a military. Here's Zadok and Abiathar. We need a priesthood and so on and so on. These are all King David's delegations of faithful administrators. Administration is a spiritual gift. David needed others. Paul can refer to pastors by the word administrator, pastors in Titus 1.7. And that gift, like every other gift, has to be governed by God's word, shaped by God's word. And these verses, then coming after the summary that, that show us David ruling justly, that even if these administrators aren't always perfect, the image is God not only advanced his kingdom, but now he established his kingdom through these faithful men who now are part of his cabinet. 
12. Now we're ready to start heading to the preview. And I'll bet you, you're, you're already saying, I don't need you to do that. I already did it in my mind. Good. As you step back from these great fields of battle for a final time, here is a wonderful portrayal of God's chosen king, a golden age in Israel's history. God's chosen king over God's people, ruling with justice according to God's word, advancing even in the face of heated conflict, and then asking others to come alongside of him. And verse 15, it sounds like Ephesians 4, where Christ gives pastors to equip the flock to use their gifts to do the work of the ministry, all governed by God's word. There's a preview. What a sight. And do you see then where all this is going? God's kingdom advancing by God's promises through God's king and the face of great conflict. Can't you hear the Lord Jesus, the son of David, saying the gates of hell can't withstand as the church advances? Remember what we said. This chapter is both review and preview. They were to trust God's king and his promises. How much more we? Our king is not David, but Jesus. You open the New Testament and you're greeted with the news of somebody hailed as a son of Adam, a son of Abraham, a son of David. And among the very first words of Jesus Christ, the son of David, that Mark records in his gospel is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Do you hear that, friends? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And that king comes at his first advent not to conquer with the sword, but to forgive through the cross. As we read in our assurance of pardon, as we read from Colossians, what we see in 2 Samuel 8, God's king conquers and enemies is fulfilled in the cross. For Christ forgave all of our sins. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them in the cross. So through the forgiving work of the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus, the son of David, expands the kingdom to all nations. And just as God's kingdom then expanded to all points of the globe, we sing sometimes Jesus reigns wherever the sun does shine. All authority has been given to him and we are commitment. We are commissioned to bear witness and testify to his reign. And as the kings of the earth brought their tribute to King David, we read in Revelation one, the kings of the earth, the glory of the nations will bring their wealth to Jesus in the new Jerusalem. And Jesus' kingdom, too, was brought in by conflict, greater conflict than David ever faced. David's conflicts and sufferings, the repeated death threats, though, though pointed and severe as they were, were nothing compared to Christ's. David jammed his finger. Jesus endured a spear jammed into his side. King David took life. Jesus gave his life. The suffering of the cross. Yes, the nails. Yes, the spear. Yes, the crown of thorns. But much more, the separation from the Father. His soul being made an offering for sin. Oh, the terrible, terrifying conflict that Jesus, the son of David, faced down. The crown only came after the cross. The empty tomb only after the dark womb of the grave. And through the hellish Conflict of the cross through his soul being being poured. God's wrath poured out on it. Comes the crown of righteousness emerges the captain of our salvation. 
God's kingdom advances over our sin by his promises through his son, the king. He's a king who was not loved so that you could be eternally loved. He was conquered so that you could be comforted. He was rejected so that you could be accepted. He was judged so that you could be beloved. That's God's final king. And what do we say to these things? Did you know the answer was already in 2 Samuel 8? How do you respond to God's chosen king who conquers all of his enemies in the midst of conflict? It's right there in 2 Samuel 8. There are two examples in the passage. We have an example of a king named Toy. Before there was Toy Story, this is Toy Story. I like that. That was bad, wasn't it? That was bad. Toy. What does Toy do in verses 9 and following? He comes and he brings tribute to David before David trucks him. In other words, when he sees the terror of God's king, when he sees the justice of this king, he brings his treasure and says, you now are my king. He worships David. Now listen, that's a lesson for everybody here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord. Whatever your age, whatever your job, wherever you live, Here's the point. You have to bring your tribute to this king. You have to worship him as your only hope in life and death. You have to bring your silver and your gold to him. Because if you don't hail him as the saving king, he will be your conquering king. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. And that's a lesson King David himself never forgot and he always recalled because what does David do with the gold and the silver and the bronze that he takes? In 2 Samuel 8, he dedicates it all to the Lord. And in due course, you remember David wanted to build God a temple, but God said, no. In due course, the desire that God denied David in building the temple these very things that David won through his trusting God, these gold and silver now become the things that Solomon uses to stockpile and build the temple. Nothing is lost in the service of King Jesus. Nothing. And so what you do is you return gifts that he's given to him. My heart I offer to you, Lord, completely and sincerely. Take my life and let it be always only for thee. We sing it, but I mean, What's the most valuable thing you could have? Silver and gold. Take your silver and your gold and not one might withhold. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Do you know how much this king loves you? 